the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello everyone, I'm here today with Simon Mikhailovich. Simon is the lead manager of the Tocqueville Bullion Reserve. Simon, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Could you please tell us a little bit about the Tocqueville Bullion Reserve? Sure. Tocqueville Bullion Reserve is a global solution, domiciled in the Cayman Islands, for owning bullion through a structure with no encumbrances, through a structure that provides compliance, fiduciary accounting, uh, and all sorts of typical services and uh, features that are usually expected in financial products, but are not typical for arrangements for storing gold. But in this case, it's a pure arrangement for buying, selling, and storing gold combined with a fiduciary structure. And furthermore, the way it's organized is that the manager is not really a gold dealer or doesn't profit from trading gold, provides essentially access for people to buy gold in the wholesale market directly from the refiners and just charges a management fee. So it's a different relationship. It's a relationship where interests are more aligned. It's You're not dealing with a vendor. You're dealing with somebody who represents your interests. That's basically what it is. Brilliant. So Simon, let's start with an obvious question. Why invest in gold? And I mean, physical gold instead of the, the paper gold? Well, there, first of all, I wouldn't say that gold is an investment. There are two reasons people uh, decide to own gold. One is a speculation, which means they're looking for the price of gold to go up. Uh, and in that sense, this activity is really no different than speculating in any other commodity. And it can be, it doesn't, you don't need to use physical gold for that. You can certainly use the futures or ETFs or find some other ways, uh, you know, gold mining stocks, you know, to provide indirect but leveraged exposure to the gold price. Physical gold is not really an investment. It's it's uh, it's more of a safe haven, insurance, and a store, long-term store of value. Uh, it is also a source of independence in a sense that it is the only financial asset that is not directly reliant or indirectly reliant on the, the functioning of financial system and its institutions. And it has no counterparty. It is, it's, not, it's nobody's obligation. So it's a very unique asset. It's really the only uh, asset like this that, is, that combines sort of this independence with, uh, I guess, lasting nature or permanence. And also liquid, globally liquid, 22 hours a day, five days a week, uh, pretty much anywhere in the world. Uh, there's really nothing else quite like it uh, except for U.S. dollar, but that relies on the financial system, has to be transacted through the financial system. So that's the reason people uh, own physical gold, both people and central banks and countries. Uh, you know, countries. Sure, sure. Gold has achieved its top in 2011 at around $1,900. And uh, since then, uh, gold has never taken off again. Uh, I mean, not in US dollars, of course. Uh, there were a few false bull markets, but the $1,900 mark has um, not been achieved since. And, and, and we can say that that's despite the best efforts of central banks with their printing press working overtime. So um, for, a, for a speculator, it's got to be very frustrating, right? And, and you mentioned that uh, you, 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 you don't normally invest in gold unless you're speculating. If you're, if you're based in, in rubles, for example, gold price has appreciated significantly or in Argentine pesos or in uh, uh, Turkish lira. 
So gold is insurance for people who need insurance. It's not an insurance for U.S. dollar-based investors because the dollar hasn't suffered uh, the kind of event that would call for insurance to come and, uh, and uh, bail you out, right? And uh, tell us, uh, what's the importance of the price of gold? Well, I mean, pr nominal price of gold is not really important. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, gold was $35 an ounce in the 70s or 60s. Uh, and today it's $1,300 an ounce, but its purchasing power is similar. So if tomorrow somebody says, uh, my target for gold is $10,000 an ounce, you have to ask a lot of questions like, uh, okay, so how much are bananas? So the, the prices themselves don't matter that much. What matters is purchasing power. And in terms of gold, what I particularly focus on is relative purchasing power versus financial assets. And what people don't also appreciate is that gold does not need to go up. It may even go down in nominal price, and its purchasing power may increase dramatically. So let me give you an example of that. So for example, between uh, US stocks uh, peaked in October, I don't remember the date, uh, of 2007, and they bottomed in March of 2009, and they lost about, uh, stocks lost about 60%, S&P lost about 60%. So let's say if, uh, and during the same period, gold gained 25%, which is not that exciting. If you, you know, but think about it further. So let's say in October, you had in October of 07, you had $200 and you put $100 in gold and $100 in S&P 500. By March of 2009, you had $125 in gold and $40 in S&P 500. So the purchasing power of gold had tripled versus stocks versus productive assets. So part of the reason to own gold is not just for the sake of loving it and holding it. Part of the reason, it's liquidity reserves to A, pay obligations, but also to buy devalued assets. So if gold price, let's say, declined 10, 15, even 20% in a deflationary depression, which, by the way, the Great Depression had increased, but let's even say that. But stocks lost 70, 80% or 90% of their, of, their, of their purchasing power, of their price. I mean, you know, uh, in the land of the blind, one-eyed man is king. I mean, your gold would be buying a lot of things. It would be buying the kind of properties and the kind of stocks and bonds that you could never buy with it today. Uh, and, and goods, potentially. I know that you, I read during the Great Depression, for example, I mean, you could buy uh, a, a, an office building in midtown Manhattan for $10,000. Okay, so $10,000, of course, let's say today it's a million dollars, maybe, or whatever. I don't know, multiplied by whatever you want. But you can't buy, you barely can buy an apartment for a two-bedroom apartment. You can't buy for a million dollars in midtown Manhattan. Never mind, never mind an office building. So why? Because nobody had any money. All the money got, the, the dollar was very strong. But nobody had the money because they all got lost in, in the banks. <laughs> so the theoretical dollar was strong, but people's actual dollars were gone. So I don't focus on the gold price. What I focus on is the demand and supply. Gold has no cash flow. So in terms of its purchasing power and its potential to appreciate in real terms, not in nominal terms, you have to look at the supply and demand picture. And so in the beginning of this conversation, I said that the, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of interest in, in gold in the West because people don't feel uh, the pressure. So what you have to imagine is under what circumstances would demand for gold increase? And because there is not a lot of demand, you would have to posit that the price of gold 
has potential to increase dramatically, whether it's nominally or in real terms. So that that's that that's how I that's how I think about it. I don't think about it as whether it's thirteen hundred dollars or nineteen hundred dollars or five thousand dollars. It completely depends on. There are many other factors. Question is, what does it buy? How much does it buy in various types of goods and services and assets? And I think that that's where I think that's where the opportunity in gold is, is because its ability to appreciate dramatically in terms of its purchasing power. You know, you, you make money by buying when everybody's selling. So you have to have the means and liquidity and the purchasing power to do it. This is a independent store of purchasing power for times when other people don't have this purchasing power. That's the biggest bang for the buck, as they say in America. But the central banks have not stopped printing money since and gold has not made any highs in uh, US dollars. Yes, it did made new highs in other currencies, but not in US dollars. No, that's right. But that's my point. They, 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 they printed all this money. Uh, people were worried that there was going to be inflation. People understand inflation uh, in popular vernacular as the rising or higher consumer prices for consumer goods. That is a very narrow definition, uh, which doesn't include a lot of other things, but that's sort of uh, conventional wisdom. So you can say that there's been tremendous inflation, even hyperinflation uh, in, for example, goods, uh, luxury goods or in financial assets. And the reason for that is very simple, because normally or traditionally in the past, money printing has resulted in the newly printed money going to the population and then the population using this money to buy goods and services, driving up prices of those goods and services. This is not what's happened this time because of the mechanism that was used to print all this money, which is quantitative easing or other buying securities uh, in the markets and giving money, you know, excess reserves to the banks who did not go and spend it on, you know, cars and, and other consumer goods, but they basically spend it on financial assets. So what we've seen is a tremendous run up uh, inflation in financial prices. Uh, but we haven't seen the kind of conventional inflation that people associate with uh, this word. And so in that sense, I would say that uh, the reason gold, it, it, so that's one thing. And the other thing is uh, demand for gold is inversely correlated to confidence. I, I would say that the confidence at the moment in, in the financial markets uh, and in the U.S. dollar is very high. So why would, as a gold, gold being an anti-U.S. dollar and, and sort of the uh, obverse or anti-financial asset, if you will, uh, there's a clear reason why demand for that would not be going up whilst uh, financial assets and the stock markets have been booming um, uh, both bonds and stocks except for you know a short period uh, at the end of last year so wh why would why would uh, there be a big demand for insurance I mean if the skies are blue everybody thinks the skies are blue why would they be looking for insurance in mass so, so it makes it makes it makes a lot of sense to me yeah yes of course well the time to look for insurance is when the skies are blue and that's the only time insurance is available really but as we know with with the floods and with hurricanes you know the biggest demand for disaster insurance usually is after the disaster not before the disaster that's when that's when insurance companies sell a lot of overpriced insurance that is no longer needed but the people who really benefit from it are the people who bought it when nobody wanted it that's well that was the essence of the big short in 2008 in which i was fortunate to participate um, uh, to me it makes perfect sense okay so um how is the sentiment towards gold in the u.s at the moment because uh we know that uh, russians chinese indians mainly love gold and normally acquire it but americans are really the ones who might tip the scale one way or another, right? Uh, well, eventually, yes. It's a good point about the Russians and the Chinese. You know, why 
why are they what do they see why are they accumulating gold at such a clip and by the way when we talk about the russians it's really not so much the russian population they use the dollars it's the russian government which by the way is now uh has introduced a sort of proposal legislative proposal to remove the uh, value-added tax from gold so to encourage the population to switch from dollars uh, to gold well and the reason for that is ties into what I was saying before. Uh, Western investors, uh, Latin American investors, uh, Australian investors and others have used the U.S. dollar as a substitute for gold, essentially, for, for many years. And it has served them well up to now. They don't have necessarily big problem with the financial system turning against them. The Russians have that problem. So whereas it's potential risk, I would say likely risk for the Western investors, it's a reality for the Russian uh, government and for the Russian investors. They've been under sanctions. They are seeking independence, justifiably so. I mean, as I like to say, you know, the Russians and the Chinese have been accused of many different things, but nobody has ever accused them of being stupid. So they're not doing that out of some stupidity or idiocy. I mean, they're doing it because they're subject to restrictions in the use of the financial system. The United States has what the the words it's used is weaponized the dollar, weaponized the financial institutions, and essentially has declared jurisdiction over anybody who transacts in dollars or uses SWIFT uh, to transfer money. Now, clearly, every bank in the world uh, or of any size that transacts in any foreign currency in dollars, of course, everybody does, they have to use the SWIFT. So, uh, and they have to use the US dollars. And so the Russians have felt the full brunt of what happens when there are uh, capital controls. Uh, and so they are seeking independence by shedding uh, treasuries and U.S. dollars in favor of gold, which is not subject to the same controls uh, as as the financial accounts and financial assets are. So th- th- that's why they're doing it. Interesting. And uh, well, you mentioned something there about the, the Russians and the Chinese, and that's very true. Uh, global central banks, and again, mainly uh, Russians and Chinese, bought last year the biggest amount of gold uh, since the 1970s. So there is some buying from the central banks too, and it ties really well with what you just said. In changing a little bit the subject, is gold the only way to protect oneself? Uh, what about other commodities? And uh, you obviously wouldn't recommend people to store any of the gold on a bank, right? Well, of course. I mean, you wouldn't plug your backup generator in, into the grid, right? I mean, you, you, you know, I mean, this is a concept that I think, uh, and I, I speak about it frequently, and I, I feel like I'm repeating myself if, if people have heard me before, but I, I can't emphasize this enough. There's absolutely no field of human endeavor, none. Engineering, military, I mean, you name it, intelligence services, where primary systems and secondary systems are designed to rely on each other, except in the financial markets, where people hedge uh, their portfolios by using other financial instruments. So they hedge portfolios of financial instruments using other financial instruments. What that presumes is that financial system itself is infallible. It means that people rely on prices of securities going down, no matter how badly and how dramatically markets can be disrupted to go down, they still feel that they would get paid for their insurance. But that's just not true. I mean, what happened in 2008 is that American International Group, AIG, was the largest seller of reinsurance, really, to the investment banks on subprime mortgages. And they thought that they, because those were AAA uh, tranches of subprime mortgage securitizations, they priced it very, very cheaply, this insurance, on the thesis that they would never have to pay. This There would never be an event, just like the investors think now, the dollar would never, ever 
uh, go down in a, in a major way. The U.S. government could never default on its obligations. You know, a lot of things can never, ever happen. Well, so AIG thought it could never happen. And then it happened. And overnight, they had to post $180 billion to their counterparties, who all of a sudden started suffering losses on something that could never happen. And of course, they didn't have the money to do that. And, this, and, and the U.S. government had to bail them out overnight. And had it not done that, pretty much every bank, major bank in the world would have gone bust. I mean, simple as that. And so if it's $180 billion, I mean, I know it, today's trillion, multi-trillion dollar world doesn't sound like much, but it was, uh, you know, like 30, 40% of the U.S. banking system's capitalization at that time, which which would be, would be disastrous. So yes, it can happen. It does happen. Uh, and it happened in that case. And so when people use uh, derivatives or other financial instruments to hedge uh, their portfolios against catastrophic or what I call systemic risks, I mean, they have to really think is if they really win, quote unquote, are they going to are they going to get paid? Uh, chances are they won't. Uh, and that's where gold and that's where gold comes in. Now, you ask a question, are there other uh, hard assets? Yes, of course, there are a lot of hard assets that do not uh, rely on the financial system. I mean, all hard assets do not rely on the financial system, but none of them are as practical as gold because, you know, other precious metals. Let's, let's take silver, for example. Silver is a precious metal. It has very high speculative potential if there were type of event, whether it's a breakout of inflation where gold prices run or where it's uh, demand for gold rises, the demand for silver will rise too. But it's not as practical because silver is 200 times, 200 times less valuable than gold by volume. So it takes 200 times as much space to store the same amount of value in silver as it does in gold. So obviously logistics, moving and storing it is a lot more expensive. Uh, the market is also not nearly is liquid. The same thing with palladium and platinum. All those are valuables. And yes, they could protect wealth over the long term, but they're not necessarily as liquid or as practical or as easy to negotiate as gold. I mean, there's a reason why central banks don't own palladium. I mean, they, they own gold because that is the, the most liquid uh, source. And the other thing is when people say liquidity, the liquidity in the conventional conversation is understood in the investment world as ability to exchange an asset for cash without a discount. So something that's very liquid can be instantly sold without a discount at the market price. Well, gold has an additional feature to that. First of all, it can be sold, but if this financial system doesn't work or, or is disrupted or there are some issues with capital controls or whatever, gold is really the only asset that is easily accepted by anyone in payment of, of an obligation without any guarantee or anything. I mean, think about it. It is the most ubiquitous and it is the most useless, useful uh, barter medium. I mean, what else would you use if, if you had to resort to barter? If, if you didn't have a choice, if you would you pay with high yield bonds? Would you pay with uh, secu di digital securities that you don't even hold in your hands because they're in electronic custody, probably held in a street name under your broker's name at a brokerage? You couldn't do that. Would you barter with antiques or diamonds? Could, people don't know exactly what their worth is. Your gold is priced transparently. Everybody knows what it's worth and everybody knows what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a simple, it's a basic element, atomic number 79, and it's very easy to check whether it's genuine or not. So it just evolved over thousands of years to that point, and everybody agrees on that. And I'd like, I'd like to make, but there was an article in The Economist a couple of a week ago or so, which gave a great sort of example where somebody asked the question, so if, if I were in New York City and I, I needed to meet somebody and I was looking for that person and I knew that that person was looking for me, but we had no idea 
where we were or how to get in touch. We had absolutely no information. How would we get in touch? How would we find each other in a city like New York City? And so they did a survey and the majority of the people asked answered very sensibly. They said, I would go every day at noon and stand at the Grand Central Station by the main clock, right? Independently, people answered that question. In other words, when posed with such a intractable problem and people think about it, there's there's some common denominator that they come up with that common sense would suggest that, look, if we don't know anything, what would the other person think? What would they think? This is what the majority of people thought. Well, that's what gold is. It's it's a it's a it's a central uh, Grand Central Station clock at noon. It's something that everybody around the world agrees on. Everybody knows what it is. And when other things fail, that's what people go to. That's been happening for thousands of years. It's not, we're not inventing anything here. That's a great explanation, Simon. Thank you for that. So there has been some activity in the gold stocks recently. Uh, What do you expect going forward? Well, this activity has to do with, I mean, you have to, you have to step back a little bit and look at what's been going on in the, uh, what's been going on in the gold uh, stock space. Uh, because as we, we started at the start of this conversation, you said gold is the price of gold has been languishing. When the price of gold went from 1900, but it, by the way, when people use this number 1900, I, I encourage everybody to look at the chart. It was at 1900 for about 12 minutes, uh, <laughs> it, just like it was at 800 in the 1980s for for a very short period of time. So if you really take out that very brief spike, which had to do with potential U.S. debt crisis, uh, it's gold is you know, not been that high. And so during the period when the prices declined and the interest in gold stocks diminished, the exploration budgets have been slashed. Uh, a lot of gold companies have been struggling to uh, to make it. They've cut costs and did, did all kinds of things. But what they have not been doing is exploring for new gold. And so now uh, with the market uh, feeling better, the gold market feeling better, the price is not going up aggressively, but it's basically, but it's been, you know, trending positively. Uh, the gold companies have realized that um, if it's true that interest in gold is coming back, and I start to feel like it, like like it is, it, where are they gonna where are they gonna get new reserves? It's very difficult to find. First of all, it's difficult to find, and it takes time. There's no way. What people don't realize is that there's certain processes. It's you know we're we're in a financialized world. Everything is instant. You know, you you, you pull up an app, you push a few buttons it's done. You can't do that with a gold mine. It takes 10 years to get the mine up and running. From the time you find the, the deposit to the time you explore it, uh, get it uh, engineered, you know, get the engineering done, get all the permits, uh, from the find to production, it, it takes on average like nine years. So even if the price of gold went up dramatically tomorrow, it's just not possible to uh, dramatically increase access to new uh, to new gold production. Just not there. I mean, it's it could be there if a lot of money gets spent and the next ten years gets devoted to uh, uh, to bringing new mines online. So, and that I think is what's driving uh, consolidation is because it's it, instead of going and looking for gold, well, you can just easily buy other companies' reserves. And so that's that's what's going on. And, and in the process, by the way, you can take a lot of costs out, right? Because every company has its own corporate department and they have all the functions, finance department and marketing department, and you only need one for each company. So instead of six companies, you can have one department, one set of costs as opposed to six sets of costs. So that's why they're doing it. Sure. So uh, you expect more consolidation going forward, right? Yes. Unless there's a, you know, unless something happens and there's a big crash in the gold market or some other, you know, event that we cannot see 
beat the second, yes, I do expect that there will be more consolidation. And then they're going to go down, you know, once they've gobbled up the big ones, the reserves and take out the costs. So I think that this process is just starting. Sure. Uh, now, Simon, you work with uh, derivatives a lot and we're able to profit from them on the way up, but even more importantly, also on the way down. And that was impressive. And this is all before moving to gold. So you understand the derivative sector well. Is the situation in this uh, in this market better today than what it was in 2007? Do, do you see any potential problems arising from derivatives again? I do because I have a macro thesis that tells me that I think we're going to have some sort of a repricing of financial assets. Uh, the way I would describe it is, I mean, I don't know whether we're going to have an inflationary episode, a deflationary episode, currency devaluation. But it seems to me, looking at the at the balance sheets of countries and, and, and companies and consumers across many countries, uh, including Australia, for example, uh, that the amount of debt that's that's been taken up cannot really be paid out paid out out of the any kind of reasonable expectations of cash flows and so what that means is because every dollar of debt uh, is somebody's liability right but it's also somebody's asset if all this debt cannot be repaid in uh, real money meaning in real purchasing power uh, then financial assets ha somebody has to lose money Financial assets have to lose purchasing power. Whether that happens nominally or through inflation or devaluation, I, I don't know. But somehow that has to that has to happen. And therefore, you know, with derivatives, it's difficult to say because derivatives are, are based on nominal prices. So you can say, if, if, for example, in an inflationary episode, uh, if you are shorting something using derivatives, but the prices go up, not because the real value goes up or the purchasing power goes up, or you know, like Venezuela stock market the best performing stock market in the world, right? So if you were short that stock market, you'd lose all your money many times over. Even if the purchasing power of, of the shares, uh, you know, because of the currency devaluation goes down. But fundamentally, I think derivatives are a huge problem. The reason I say that is because there are $500 trillion worth of derivatives in the world. And just like with AIG, this whole um, construct is based on the idea that, uh, I don't know, like Deutsche Bank has $40 trillion of derivatives. Now, obviously, no auditor would sign off on $40 trillion worth of liabilities uh, for a company like Deutsche Bank. Uh, JP Morgan has a similar amount. And so the Citibank, you know. So nobody would ever sign off on this. So what all of these banks do is they, again, reinsure. In other words, they owe money to, say, hedge funds or somebody or some other bank, and then they buy protection from somebody else. And so what they always would tell you is we do not, we do not have a lot of exposure because we are net flat meaning our net exposure, like we sold all this protection, but then we bought protection. And so if we have to pay these people, we're going to get paid by those people. Well, so what happened with AIG is exactly that. The banks promised the hedge funds to pay all this, and they thought that AIG was going to pay them. And then it turns out AIG couldn't pay them, so the, the U.S. government paid them. So unless the governments can, again, bail everybody out, which I, I think should not be taken for granted by any means, uh, given the political situation in many countries and the rise of populism and, you know, unpopularity of the bailouts last time. I think that's fanciful thinking. And so this system works very well as long as every person or every entity in this daisy chain of mutual obligations can meet uh, their obligations as and when do. And as soon as one or two cannot, the whole house comes down. And that's what happened in a way. And I, and I don't think anything has really changed. Okay. Uh, uh, well, it, it looks like the U.S. government is increasing its debt by a trillion dollars a year. And at a time that there is no crisis, no war, no anything. Um, and, and so what you're saying, uh, who, who will act? 
ultimately by the U.S. debt, right? I mean, who's going to bail out the governments? Because debt has risen way more than the economy. It's definitely not sustainable. Well, that's why that's why I think the ultimate release valve for the unsustainability of debt is inflation or some sort of dev- devaluation of currency, the purchasing power of currency and the purchasing power of financial assets. The reason for what the central banks have been doing is to try to achieve inflation, the con- consumer inflation. They have not been able to do that because of the globalized world, because of, I mean, it's a whole separate discussion as to what happened with globalization, what happened with outsourcing and cheap consumer goods that flooded the world. Uh, and also because of automation and globalization, the, the labor's ability to price their services has been dramatically diminished. So uh, wage inflation is, is very difficult to achieve because because labor does not have pricing power uh, because of a lot of other reasons, which again, like I said, it's a subject of a larger conversation. Um, so they have not been able to achieve it. They've been able to achieve it in asset prices. They've been able to achieve it in, uh, you know, $200 million apartments with a view of Central Park in New York City, right? Because the inflation is where the money goes. If the money goes to certain people and they start chasing goods and services, then there's inflation in those goods and services that those people chase. So a $200 million apartment in New York City, I mean, it's preposterous. It's completely preposterous, but and yet it exists. It exists because very small group of people got the you know got super wealthy or hyper wealthy from the, the, these policies, and most of the people have not, which is why the we are seeing the political turmoil and the divisiveness and, and the rise of populism across the Western world everywhere, uh, precisely because of that. So if 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 you know, I'm starting to think that if the markets don't fix this problem, uh, uh, the politicians will fix this problem, or the new crop of politicians will fix this problem through forced forceful redistribution, and that's and that can also happen. But you're saying, you know, nobody cares. It's a faith-based initiative, right? I mean, the fiat currency is not backed by anything. So there's really uh, the only thing that's stopping uh, it from from being devalued is confidence of the people. So as long as people believe that it's money good, they act as if it is money good, even if it is, even when it isn't. This is how every Ponzi scheme works. I mean, if, if our, you know, our pyramid scheme, right? I mean, if people didn't believe in it from the beginning, it would never become a Ponzi scheme in the first place. It only ends once it reaches a certain crescendo, once you basically run out of new people or run out of confidence. And so that's kind of where we've, we have been. But you also have to consider that poor people, you know, go go broke very quickly because they don't have a lot of accumulated credibility and a lot of a lot of confidence. Rich people and rich countries go broke slowly. I mean, look at the British Empire. I mean, it took them a long time to go down, even though after World War One, arguably was already clear. But it took another 30, 40 years for that for, for that to become complete reality, acknowledged reality and for the pound to stop being the reserve currency of the world, be replaced by the U.S. dollar. It didn't happen until after World War II, so uh, in other 30 years. So uh, I would say that we're basically in that process with the United States. I mean, clearly the fiscal situation is untenable. The balance sheet is untenable. Uh, the interest rates cannot be, be lifted. I mean, we can see that. The Fed uh, tried and they can't they can't get it done without tank, you know, destroying the markets. And so, you know, people, it's really not that the facts aren't there. I mean, I'm not making any predictions. I'm making observations of things that everybody knows. It's just that the Russians, let's say, are feeling it already. And the Westerners are seeing it, but not feeling it yet. So they don't think it applies to them which is why they don't have a lot of demand for gold and and for other safe havens. 
That, that's the difference. Why do people smoke? It says on the package, it'll kill you. And it will. My father died of emphysema. But they smoke anyway, because it won't kill me today. And we'll worry about the rest tomorrow. I, I don't think it's... Uh, human nature has not changed in thousands of years. So I don't think that, I don't think that this is uh, that unusual or that impossible to understand. It's pretty easy to understand. Sure, you think sure. So uh, as per what you're saying, uh, what we saw in Cyprus a few years ago can happen in a larger scale, say in the US or in Europe, for instance, right? Absolutely. It most likely will. It most likely will. And in fact, uh, you know, people for many, many years, you know, because of all the bailouts for 30, 30, 40 years, because of all the bailouts and because of the concept, at least in the United States, I don't know how it works in Brazil or Australia, you know, a deposit insurance where the government gets guarantees a certain amount of deposits in the bank, you know, it's been essentially cheap to misplace trust. It wouldn't cost you anything. So you can make bad decisions and it doesn't cost you anything. And so people keep making bad decisions. They keep giving their money to the banks, even though banks may be unsound. They keep keeping the, it in dollars, even though dollars may not be sound because they have not been penalized for that. And when you look at the debasement of the dollar, let's say over the past hundred years or the British pound over the past hundred years, you would see that both of them lost almost, you know, almost all of its purchasing power. You know, in the case of British pound, it's like 99.4% or something like that. In the case of a dollar, it's maybe 96, 97%, which by the way, leaves another 90% from here to catch up to the British pound. But that debasement happened in spurts. It happened after World War One or during and after World War One. It happened during the 30s and 40s, you know, in connection with World War Two, and it happened in the 1970s. And then for the last 35 years, it's been happening, but at a steady pace. Uh, and so, you know, it's like the it's like the frog boiling in, in the water. That's the temperature is rising slowly. You don't feel it. You feel it if you got scolded. You jump out, but uh, but you don't feel it when the temperature is being raised. So when we go through the next crisis. And there will be the next crisis. It's not like there will not be a next crisis. There are always crises every, whatever, dozen years or 10 years. Not, not according to Janet Yellen. Uh, there will never be. <laughs> right. Well, it's like uh, Fisher uh, is speaking in uh, 1929, right? Stocks have reached a permanently higher plateau. Famous last words. So, of course, there will be another crisis. The question is how bad crisis it will be. I mean, we've had many crises and they haven't led to the kind of collapse that 2008 uh, uh, led to. And, of course, because nothing was fixed in 2008. It was just patched up with more debt and more bailouts and zero interest rates. I, I don't see why a rational person would expect the next crisis to be better. I expect it to be worse. There's 40% more debt in the world than there was uh, last time. And the interest rates are, you know, uh, negative in some European countries and uh, very, very ultra low in the United States. So IMF is issuing papers discussing how to enforce radically negative prices, uh, rates, I'm sorry, which is otherwise is known as expropriation, but not polite say that. And of course, how do they want to do that? Well, they want to eliminate cash. They basically want to eliminate people's ability to hold value outside the financial system so that they can uh, rake off, you know, whatever, a couple of percent every year from everybody, from the money that they have in the financial system. Well, that's where gold comes in. I mean, you can't do that with gold and you can't do that with physical cash, which is why owning physical cash has become problematic. I mean, it's not problematic to own it. It's problematic to use it. I mean, go try to spend a few hundred thousand dollars uh, in cash and see how that works. It's essentially already not feasible. Even if it's perfectly legal, it's not feasible uh, because of the compliance regulations. And so I, I, I think that, the, you know, gold is sort of the last kind of resort where you can still own it, which is why we do it the way we do it in a compliance structure with all the proper uh, 
you know, bells and whistles, but then you have ability to take it physically. And if you need to do that, you'll, you can take it physically and the government cannot take X percent off of it because they're not controlling it. That's physical goods are notoriously hard to control. You can also keep physical goods in different jurisdictions, whereas all financial assets are essentially uh, the same regulatory jurisdiction in addition to the jurisdiction of the courts. What I mean by that, in most democratic countries, a government, unless there's martial law, does not walk up and take your house from you. There has to be some judicial process for that to happen. You know, if you don't pay your mortgage, foreclosure process is a legal procedure uh, that has to be followed. Now, when it comes to financial assets, like in Cyprus, I mean, the regulator one morning says all bank accounts are closed and you can take 300 euros a day. Done. Oh, and by the way, we're going to haircut your deposit by 30% or 40%. There's no court. There's no legislation. There's nothing. There's no democratic process for that to happen. What's called due process. It's just done by fiat. And that's the difference also between all physical assets and financial assets. Financial assets are subject to fiat jurisdiction. The regulator can just do whatever they want. Then you can sue later and maybe you prevail. Maybe, maybe not years later. But that's, you know. But you have no control up front. That's the, I think that's another reason why uh, you know central banks are accumulating gold. Is they, they're seeking independence. They want to make decisions themselves. They don't want to be subject to other people making decisions for them. I think people sure, should do definitely, the same. Definitely. Listen, Simon, I really appreciate it. Once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. Um, and it, again, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.